Well, most good sermons start with something that get your attention, right? That grab you, that make you, wanna, that make you say to yourself, hey, I, I think I want to pay attention for the next half hour or so, right? Uh, it, it could be a story or um, it could be uh, something from current event. It could be a funny clip. Whatever it is, you know, you, you want a reason to listen. And some of you are thinking, yes, go on. Go on, I'm listening. Uh, it, could, it could be a guy talking about the importance of introductions. I don't know, like I am right now. Uh, whatever it is, we all want a reason to listen. And as I was preparing this text for this, for this sermon this past week, um, it struck me, even as I heard Tim read it just now, there is enough intrigue in this story for all of us to sit up and pay attention, right? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I felt the whiplash of... For those of us who have been in 1 Corinthians here, we're taking a little bit of a left turn here. I mean, we're shifting from Paul laying this groundwork to diving right into the issues of the church. And let me just say, it's not pretty. Things are getting real, and they're getting real fast. Until now, Paul's been really keying in on their pride, spiritual pride. They're boasting. They've been boasting in leaders, boasting in wisdom, boasting in their gifts, Boasting, boasting, boasting. Everyone here is getting a little bit tired of hearing about this church's boasting. Well, I hate to break it to you, but we're not, we're not done with this church's spiritual pride, not yet. Because that is what has led this church to being okay with doing things that frankly made their pagan neighbors blush. The blindness and, and self-deception caused by pride has brought them to a place where they've made room for sin in their midst. There's no place where self-deception, which is what we talked about a couple weeks ago, is, is more powerful, more pervasive, and more dangerous than the sin in our own hearts. The sin in our own hearts. Nothing deceives us like sin. And nothing destroys a church, a faith community, like being okay with it. Like being okay with sin in our midst. So Paul says, don't be deceived. Deal with sin or it will deal with you. Or better, deal with sin or it will deal with us. We need to deal with sin in our midst. So this week we've got this messy situation. Next week we've got Christian brothers uh, suing one another, or at least defrauding one another, uh, threatening lawsuit. And then in a couple weeks we'll look at people making theological excuses for going to see prostitutes, right? And that's, this is just through February, Right, so just buckle up. It's about, it's about to get a little bit heavy. Here's the deal with sin that Paul wants us to see. First, sin should break our hearts. Second, sin is destructive and contagious. And third, sin must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. First, sin should break our hearts. So if you have a Bible, whether um, a paper form or electronic copy, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to start at verse 1. And it should be up on the screen for us, too. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not to rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul jumps right in. It's not pretty. And it's, and it's easy to see how he, how he finishes, why he finishes the way he does in chapter 4. So just scoot back a little bit into chapter 4. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? 
He basically, basically says, what am I supposed to do with you? I've heard my mom say that a thousand times. Uh, what am I supposed to do with you? Should I, should I go get the rod? I mean, someone in your midst, someone in your community is sleeping with a stepmom. And you're okay with it. In fact, some of you are actually proud. Some of you may be hearing this for the first time, thinking, how could, I, how could someone do something like that? Like, this is not cool. And, and you're right. It's not okay. This kind of behavior is not okay. Even their Roman neighbors, pagans, which is not, which is not meant to be a derogatory term. It's just this pluralistic society around them. They, they would have viewed this type of thing, incest, as coloring outside the lines. They, even the Romans, who had a pretty lax view of sexuality, were like, whoa, that's, that's not cool. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't see this crazy situation as the real problem. It's just exhibit A of something much deeper, much more troubling, and much more applicable. What horrifies Paul is actually their response to sin, the response to such gross misconduct in their midst. And that brings it a little bit closer to home for us, right? But dealing with someone else's sin, confronting sin, naming sin in somebody else's life is a, is a pretty tricky thing, right? It's hard. It's hard to do. There's, a lot, there's things we're holding in balance, like, like purity and people, or truth, truth and grace. Uh, here's what I mean. Hopefully you can see. There's, I've got a little matrix. Uh, I love things. I'm kind of a visual learner, so hopefully this helps. But uh, we're, we're holding some things in balance when we confront sin. Namely, the purity of the church or purity of uh, individuals and their people and their growth in Christ. Both are vitally important for us to be the church as God designed it to be. But sometimes these things get out of balance. Uh, for example, if we care too much about purity and not enough about people, our response to sin is condemnation, right? It's, it's throwing stones. It's uh, legalistic things like, like punishment or, um, or shunning or even gossip. Gossip could be a, a condemning response to sin. And for some here, you, that's maybe why you've at least thought about giving up on the church and checking out, right? You have experienced churches that care so much about purity and about truth and doctrine and practice, which are good things. They care so much about that that they kick people to the curb. They marginalize. It's at the expense of people. Sometimes we don't care about people or, or purity, right? We're just indifferent. Our response to sin is indifference. Who, ca- who cares? I mean, this, this guy's problem is not my problem. Whatever he does is not my deal. I can't, I mean, I can't judge, right? And I think the Corinthians, some of them were in this place, indifferent to the sin in their midst. But it's also easy to imagine the same low concern for purity, but a high concern for people, right? A high concern, you're compromising purity for people. And this response can be called accommodation. It's, you're, you're literally making room, making accommodation for sin in your midst in the name of grace, in the name of Christian freedom, right? We're free, and we make room for sin. And this is what has Paul so worked up in this text, because sometimes this accommodation can look like boasting in freedom, boasting in our grace, in grace. And there's a, there's a paradox here that some of you may be feeling. 
Today, if Christians, if we, if we name something as sin, you know, this thing over here is sin, others look at us and say, those proud jerks. Like, how can they, say, how can they call out sin? Right? It's, it's, our, our judgment of sin is viewed as, as an issue of pride or arrogance. But Paul, he actually says it's the opposite. He, lo- he looks at the Corinthians and says, your lack of judgment on this man is an outworking of your spiritual pride. Their pride has blinded them to the brokenness in their church and the way that it's actually hurting this man. And hurt, I mean, this truth and grace are out of balance. But when truth and grace are in balance, when we, we have both a high concern for purity and a high concern for people and their growth in Christ, we respond to sin rightly with grief. We respond in mourning. We see the seriousness of sin and how it hurts people and how it destroys the church, and we grieve. Sin shouldn't be met with condemnation or indifference or accommodation. Those are all actually issues of pride. Sin should break our hearts. should break our hearts. We need to deal with sin or it will deal with us. Well, the Corinthians weren't doing anything, right? They, they weren't responding to sin this way. In fact, they were, they were boasting in it. So Paul, as the apostle, as a founder of that church, and as, as their spiritual father, like we talked about last week, he steps in and pronounces a judgment on them. He says, remove, remove this man from the church. He needs to be removed. And you may be thinking, wait a second. We just talked about last week how we aren't to judge, right? We, don't, we can't judge others. We can't even be a judge of ourselves, right? God, only God is the judge, and that is true. In chapter 4, Paul's talking about judging matters of the heart, in, internal motives, right? We, I mean, we don't, even know, we don't even know our own motives. Even my motives coming up here and, and hoping to open God's word and speak his word after him are mixed, right? And I confess that before God. But we don't even know our own hearts. Only God can judge the heart. But here, Paul's talking about judging matters of external behavior, things that we can see, that we can evaluate against Scripture and say, this is not right. And in that way, Christians ought to be judging one another. Not, not in a judgmental, condemning way, but with grief, right? That's easier said than done. I, I mean, that's easy to say right here. Uh, it's hard to practice, but we're going to get there in a few moments. So Paul says, let him who's done this be removed from among you. Deal with sin or it will deal with us. So why such extreme action, right? Removal from the church seems pretty harsh. Why such extreme action? Well, that's because sin is destructive and contagious. That's our second point. Sin is destructive and contagious. Paul's judgment does seem harsh, right? I mean, look at this. Where is that verse? Verse uh, 3, no, verse 2. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That sounds great, right? That's a loving thing to do. But keep reading. He says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul urges them to remove this man for his own good, for his salvation. It's hard to know exactly what he means by this uh, destruction of the flesh. But uh, I think what we can say with certainty is that it's not good. It's not a... And I know you're like, you went to seminary, and this is what you have for us. It's, this is, yes, that's right. 
Destruction of the flesh, giving, handing someone over to Satan is not a good thing. Some think maybe, it, maybe it's physical death, maybe that's in view, but what we at least know is Paul has removal from the church, some kind of excommunication in mind, which would not have been easy. This would have been really hard. I mean, he couldn't just walk down the street to the next church, right? We're talking about a day, I mean, this is the only, this is the only church in town. So removal from this, communi- this faith community would have been very hard for this man. So we know that's not good, but we also know that Paul says to do this so that he may be saved, which is really a good thing. His removal is meant for his good. See, sin needs to be dealt with, even if sometimes that means taking extreme action that feels, that feels really unloving. One, one, of Beth, one show that Beth and I like to watch uh, is called Intervention. I almost said it's our favorite show, but it's not. It's not our favorite show. But uh, I don't know if any of you have seen this show. It, it basically documents the different struggles and different kinds of struggles that addicts face. And each, each episode follows one or two people uh, with a substance dependence or some other kind of problem. I mean, it's, it really is, in, in many ways, hard to watch because addicts are, are, are living and dying a, a slow death. <laughs> it's sad. The whole episode leads up to an intervention uh, where the addict is given an ultimatum by friends and family. Basically this, go to rehab now, immediately, today, or risk losing contact or income or other privileges from friends or family, from the people around that room. So every single one of the people in the room shares their bottom line. They say, if you don't go to rehab today, these are the consequences. It sounds terribly unloving. I mean, you see it on the face of the, per- of the, of the addicted person. It, They look like they're being unloved in that moment. But it's actually the most loving thing that those folks can do. They can't keep enabling, right? The addict needs to change. They need to change. So Paul's saying, give this guy your bottom line. Give him your bottom line. It won't be easy, but it's for his good. It's for your good as a church. Sin is destructive to individuals. It's also destructive for communities or for families, like like the families of an addict. Sin destroys. It's because sin is also contagious. That's Paul's point in verse 6. Let's look down to verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you already are unleavened. So Paul uses a metaphor, a, a, a metaphor for bake, of baking, uh, to talk about the infectious nature of sin. Now, if you're like me, you thought, what's leaven? We don't really talk about leaven much today. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Uh, when, when we, you know, in that day when they were to, to go to bake, a, uh, bake some bread, they'd make the dough and they'd separate some of it out and set it aside and let it ferment or spoil. And they'd bake this bread uh, and, and the next week, they would go, when they went to bake more bread, they'd take the fermented bread and knead it back in, and that would help it to rise. So it's, it's kind of like yeast in some way. But this leaven actually served to kind of puff up the bread. And that's, the, that's actually the language that Paul used last week for the Corinthians and their pride. He said, you're, you're puffed up with pride, with arrogance. 
So once the leaven gets worked into the dough, there's, I mean, there's no going back, right? It's, it's in there, it spreads throughout the entire lump. And that's the picture Paul's using for sin in the church. Sin is contagious, it spreads. Not only does sin affect each and every one of us and touch every part of every one of us, but it, it can also do the same in the body of Christ. Like a cancer that's untreated, sin spreads and destroys. So Paul says, cleanse out the old leaven. Cleanse it. In other words, sin must be dealt with. Sin must be dealt with. That's our third, that's our third point this morning. Now, what does that mean? What, is, what does it mean? What does it look like? I mean, could we just pack it up? Could we kick everybody out and say, look, let's call it a day. I know we're five weeks in, but we're all sinners, so let's just... No, we can't do that. We can't just all leave because we have sin issues. Look at, look at verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Because that would mean, but now, uh, well, sorry, I lost my place. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Basically, uh, you'd, have to be, you'd have to die. Because, right, we, we encounter these people uh, outs- I mean, outside the church all the time. This is, this is the world we live in. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if he or she is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. There you have it, right? Easy peasy. There, it's clear, clear as day. No, it's not. It's, this is tough. It's tough to know how to deal with sin, whether inside the church or out. So if we're going to make any sense of Paul here, we've got to see this passage through three relationships. So one, sin, dealing with sin in our own lives, dealing with the sin of outsiders and with one another. So three relationships, yourself with outsiders and one another. First, start with yourself. When you're dealing with sin, start with yourself, which, right, seems like a good place to start. But this, this is both the simplest and the, and the hardest. This is hard. I mean, sin is deceitful. But it's a necessary starting point because we all have logs in our own eyes. This is Jesus' language. We all have logs in our eyes that we need to deal with before we can go help our neighbor with the splinter or the speck in their eye, right? We have to start here in ourselves. So let's slow down, slow down right here for a moment and think, what sin has the potential in your life to destroy you? What sin is destroying you? What sin needs to be removed from your life? I mean, this this point... (laughs) Has, has hit me this week. God has been working here. What sin in your life needs to be removed? Because this isn't just about some weird relationship between a guy and a stepmom, okay? Paul actually gives a pretty substantial list in the middle of this text. Here's some, here's some, some of the questions that could come out of this list that Paul gives. What sexual sin is killing you? How is greed infecting your heart and stealing your joy? 
Is your anger keeping you from getting close to others? Or is it actually hurting those that you love? How's your relationship with alcohol? Are you using it to escape the pain of reality? What about your business practices? Are you prone to deceive for gain? I mean, that's the sin that Paul's talking about. And it's, e- it's easy to see out there, right, outside, and forget that we have greed and lust that's festering inside of us, that's nurtured in here. And if sin is thriving in your heart, it is destroying you. If sin is nurtured in my life, when sin is nurtured in my life, it destroys me. Sin is not okay. And before we look at them and complain about them and point out all their mistakes, we have to look in the mirror and come to grips with our own mess. Simple? Yes, this is not profound. Easy? No way. Not a chance. But we can help each other here, right? Ask yourself, am I confrontable? Have I given others permission to speak into my life? I mean, this is one way that we start with ourselves, is by asking others and giving them the permission to call us out in our sin. Call me out. Call Tim out. Call, call one another out when you see sin that needs to be dealt with. We'll talk about how that happens a little bit here in, in the next couple of coming moments, but be confrontable. And this is one of, one of the reasons why church membership is so important. When you join a church, you're actually giving the church and giving one another explicit permission to call one another out. And by God's grace, we will, we will do that. We will speak into one another's lives. Start with yourself. Second, be gracious to outsiders. Be gracious to outsiders. If you're not a Christian here this morning, we are so glad that you're here. Paul makes it clear, we are to look at your sin, the sin in your life, in a different way than we look at our own. And I'm sorry for the ways that the church has blown it. Because we have blown it. Sometimes the church can be the worst, right? We come at you with logs in our eyes. We can be a hypocritical bunch, but please hear me on this. We love you. We, we don't, we want to see what's best for you. We want to spend time with you. We want to defend your rights. No matter what it is that you're dealing with, we want to come and meet you where you are because that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus does. But it's not like, it's not like your sin is not destructive. That's not Paul's point here. Sin is destructive inside the church and outside the church. Death always follows sin. Paul's point is that it's not the Christian's job to judge, to judge that sin. Only God can judge. So we are to be gracious, be gracious to outsiders. And we need to save our jurisdiction, Christians, for inside the church. Because we have, we have more than enough to deal with inside the church. This is where it can get a little bit messy. So we start with ourselves, we give grace to outsiders, and we love one another till it hurts. We love one another till it hurts. Tough love. Paul says, remove him from the church. Don't, don't even associate with this man. Don't even eat with someone like this guy. That's, that's a harsh word. 
Now keep in mind that this is a case study, right? So not, this is not a universal command. Paul is addressing a specific church in a specific culture at a specific time. When we see case studies in scripture, it's, you know, as opposed to clear universal commands, it's good. It, it forces us actually to think through principles rather than hard and fast rules, a one, si- one size fits all approach. So we need to ask, what is Paul's goal here in, in bringing this case study? What's his goal and, ha- and what would accomplish the same for us today? I think his goal is clear. First, it's this guy's restoration. You know, he, he needs to wake up and see that the path he's on is destructive. So restoration for this man. But second, it's protection of the church, right? Sin is contagious and can corrupt others in this. I mean, we can corrupt one another with our sin. And it can also damage our witness to the world, right? Sin is contagious and destructive. So restoration and protection are the goal. So that's a good question. How can we restore and protect? How can we restore and protect? Would kicking someone out, removal of the church, today restore them? Possibly. And there are times when it's, when it's necessary to remove people from the church. But it probably won't restore actually as much as it'll protect. And here's what I mean. More often than not, when somebody leaves the church because of sin, they just, they just go down the street and, and in fact, and that seems like harsh language, but they just take their sin to the next church. So it might actually protect us, this, the sending church, but it's hurtful. It's actually, it's not necessarily restorative. So even if it's not kicking someone out of the church, we need discipline in some form or fashion. And we, we know this to be true. It's intuitive and unquestioned in our parenting. Right? We see this with kids. Discipline is necessary. We know children need to be disciplined for their own good. And as an uncle, I get this. Uh, I had a picture of Ellie. I love my niece and nephew, Ellie and Reed, but I'm, I don't think it made it up here. That's too bad for all of you. They're adorable. Uh, but she can't see far enough ahead of what she's doing to see the consequences, right? She needs discipline in her life. And it's usually a five-minute timeout or, you know, telling her she can't watch Frozen for the thousandth time. You know, I've used that one, and it actually worked pretty well on her. But we don't grow out of that need for discipline. It's, it's easy to think that we do, right, as adults, that somehow... We no longer need discipline in our life. We no longer need someone else to tell us, to help us see down the path ahead. In fact, I I would argue the older we get and the more dangerous and the higher stakes our choices become, the louder the alarms need to be in our own lives. The stakes for discipline are seriously high. A five-minute timeout for a guy that's about to walk out on his family just isn't going to do the trick. So Paul, the spiritual father of this church, says discipline is needed, and it's going to hurt. It it must hurt. So how do we confront today? This is is where hopefully we can get uh, a, a little bit of a handle on how we confront, how we answer the question of restoration and protection. So five quick guidelines to help us here. First, we've got to seek to understand. This is this is where you've got to start. Seek to understand. The situation. Not every sin is the same, and not every sinner is the same, right? I mean, it, for example, is, is the person fighting sin, wrestling with sin, or are they wallowing in it? Is it a new believer 
Or should they know better by now? How public is the sin? How immediate and disastrous are the consequences? These are good questions to be asking. So listen, ask questions, seek to understand the situation. Second, when, when we're confronting sin and trying to love one another till it hurts, check your heart. Check your heart. When you're ready to confront, what are your motives? Ask, what, what, are, what are my motives? Am I just irritated? Or am I grossed out? Or am I secretly envious? Or self-righteous? Or do I really want what's best for my, for my neighbor? Listen to how Paul summarizes this in Galatians 6. He says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Check your heart. Keep watch on yourself. Our motivation should always be restoration and protection. But be careful here. Don't talk yourself out of doing something what's tru- that's truly loving for another. I think the author Paul Tripp has gotten right at the heart of this. He, he writes, the truth is that we fail to confront, not because we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. Deep down, we're just afraid how we'll be perceived of being rejected or feeling uncomfortable. And that's not good enough for the community that Jesus creates. It's not easy to confront sin when your number one concern is you. True community needs, requires real, real humility, which God has just been working this deep into my, into my soul this last week. It's not thinking less of yourself, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but just thinking of yourself less. So when you, when you come, when you're, when you're ready to confront sin in someone else's life, check your heart and make sure that you're truly doing it to love them, but then confront sin when it's necessary. So third, when you're ready to confront, start small. Start small. Jesus has given us some valuable wisdom, biblical wisdom, uh, in his teaching in Matthew 18 here. He says, begin by approaching the person one-on-one. This seems like common sense, right? Uh, But it's good for us to remember, don't escalate things too quickly. When you see the sin in someone else's life, start small. If you're ignored, bring one or two others with you. This is the model in in Matthew 18. And then if you're still ignored, bring it before a larger group in the church. That's the biblical model. And in a church like ours, one of the best places to do this is community groups. This is where we where we grow together, where we love one another, where we, we come to a place where we can trust others in the body of Christ to both confront our sin and hopefully they trust us enough that we can confront sin in their life. So start small. Fourth, recognize the power of consequences. When someone in the community chooses a lifestyle or patterns their life after sin, in many ways they've actually already left. They've removed themselves from the community. They've chosen a different path. And that's because sin always separates. That, that is, you can take that to the bank. Sin always leads to separation. And sometimes we simply just must allow the natural consequences of sin to take full effect. It's like an intervention, right? The intervention, the, like the show from earlier, the consequences of a bottom line of saying, this is my bottom line, can be a powerful motivator for change. So remember 
you know, when you're ready to confront and it feels, and it feels too harsh, remember that sometimes that's what it takes for, for change to really happen. And finally, when all else fails, we do what Jesus commands in Matthew 18. We treat them as an unbeliever. Now, how do we treat unbelievers? How do we treat those outside the church? Well, hopefully, we're sharing Jesus with them. We're not condemning. We're not indifferent. We're not accommodating. We're grieving over sin, and we're sharing Jesus, the one who can, actually, who can truly offer what they need. We share Jesus with them. We love them. We pursue. We pray. One commentator has written, and I love this. He says, Church discipline cannot mean that the person becomes a pariah to be shunned by the church. It rather means that the person becomes the object of the community's missionary efforts. We love those outside the church. I hope that's, I hope that's crystal clear here. And when someone chooses sin and is removed, we still share Jesus with them. That is the, the, beautiful, that is the beautiful truth of this. I mean, the way that Jesus turns the world upside down. Through the, the, the gospel of grace, is that we still share grace with those who are choosing sin. So I hope you're getting a sense of Paul's heart here and the kind of confrontation of sin that we are called to. But I don't want to leave us here this morning. Yes, we need to deal with sin. We must deal with sin or it will deal with us. We need to confront one another in sin. But here's, here's the really good news, is that Jesus already has dealt with sin. That's, I mean, that's the bedrock good news that none of this message would make sense if Jesus hadn't already dealt with sin once for all, forever, finally and completely. I mean, that's, that's why we confront one another with our sin, right? Because Jesus has purchased for us a better way. He's made, a new, he's made new life possible in his death and resurrection. In verse 7, Paul referred to Jesus as our Passover lamb our sacrifice. And this means that there is no sin too terrible, too bizarre, too taboo, and no sinner too far gone that Jesus' death and resurrection has not already provided forgiveness and victory for. I deserve judgment. You deserve judgment. But the good news is that judgment has already fallen on Christ. And he can pronounce a different verdict over us when we trust him by faith. He was destroyed so that we could be restored. And he rose again to create a community of broken but restored sinners. And I long for that in my life. We all long for that, I hope, for one another. Yes, we deal with sin, but praise God, praise God that Jesus has dealt with it already.